Father, we pray that we would just see how fleeting these breaths are. That you would give us a sense that the time is shorter than we realize. And with that, Lord, you would fill us with a sense of longing and hope for the age to come that breaks into this sad age and transforms it. We want to be a people not who are dour and sad but who are happy in God because we know that you are going to care for us to the very end and beyond. So Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was preaching in a church in another city, another state, and something really weird happened afterward. There was, I was preaching out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, so I was preaching from the same book that I'm going to be preaching from here this morning, and it's, the, it, it's a text in chapter 1 where Paul's talking about his sufferings as an apostle and about how he constantly faced death because of the gospel. Indeed, Paul says that he believed on more than one occasion that he would surely die, as we've talked about here. Paul says that when the clouds began to gather, he felt that he was about to perish. The thing that got him through was knowing that even if he died, God would raise him from the dead. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so the whole passage is about the hope of the resurrection. I was telling the congregation at this church that they should make this their hope when they face suffering, much the same as I've been telling you over these last weeks. I told them they should trust God, trust in the God who raises the dead. And after the service was over, this man came up to me. He was probably in his 40s or 50s. And he said, you know, that's, that's a really good sermon. Really appreciate everything you had to say there, except for the part about the bodies being resurrected. And I'm thinking, well, that was kind of the main point of the whole sermon, you know. But he goes on to explain that he didn't appreciate the suggestion that we would have physical bodies in the future, in the age to come, because he believed that we lose our bodies forever after we die, and our bodiless spirits forever kind of go on to live in the age to come. Now, truly, I'm, I'm okay with people coming up to me and asking me questions after a sermon. I'm okay with people coming up to me and disagreeing with me about a particular interpretation of a text or something, that kind of thing is going to happen from time to time. But this was something completely different. Because uh, this man's reproof was based on an error. In fact, what he was confidently correcting me with was, was in fact a heresy. It goes directly against what the Christian church has always confessed and indeed, it's what we confess here in this church every week together when we say the Nicene Creed together. What do we say in that last part of it? We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. We're confessing these things together 
every week before communion, not because we're trying to fill time, but because we wish to catechize ourselves in what we believe to be the absolute non-negotiables of our faith. If our bodily resurrection is an absolute non-negotiable of the faith, how is it that so many professing Christians seem to be unaware of it? Even though the guy that was talking to me and reproving what I had taught um, came to me and was, was doing this, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't angry with the guy. I couldn't be angry with the guy, and here's the reason why. It was because there was a time in my own life where I greatly misunderstood the Bible about these things. I can recall Bible studies that I taught as a young Christian, a younger Christian, many, many years ago. And that error was plainly apart. I understood Jesus' bodily resurrection, but not quite our own. I was confused in earlier days about what happens to us after we die. And over the years, I found out that I'm not the only one who has some bit of confusion about these things. How have so many Christians gotten the Bible's teaching about the resurrection so wrong? For me, it was a combination of things. I had probably absorbed some of the Gnostic currents that still pervade our culture. Um, you don't have to be a philosopher to pick this up, all right? All you got to do is watch Star Wars. You, did you guys see episode five? Do you remember what Yoda said in episode five? He's training Luke. What does he say? Luminous beings we are. We are not this crude matter, and he points at Luke's flesh. Luminous beings we are. We're not these bodies. You cannot underestimate how much this idea pervades people's thinking. The idea that my body is not the real me is so pervasive. The real me, my spirit, is immaterial. So I'm sure I picked it up somewhere along the way from the ambient culture that, that that's the way things were, but I also think that 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 sort of popular misunderstanding was skewing my reading of Scripture. Maybe it's skewing some of your reading of Scripture. I was reading things in the Bible that said things like, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And I took it to mean that our physical bodies weren't a part of eternity, that our souls were saved but not our bodies. And I had just completely misunderstood what the Bible was saying about this. And so there are many people, I think, that have this similar misunderstanding. They're certain that there's life after death, but that life apparently doesn't include the body because the body's in the grave while the person's soul goes to heaven forever. So that's why we're saying the Nicene Creed every week when we come in here because the creed grounds us in what the scriptures actually teach, that we believe in the coming bodily resurrection from the dead. And if we miss this, we miss not only an essential of the faith, we also miss an essential for our endurance during grief and during trials in this life. You're not going to be able to deal with suffering in the present if you're not trusting in God for all that he's going to do for you in the future. If you fail to believe in the bodily resurrection, you will cling to this world as if it's all that you have. And that's why Jesus told us that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. No one who believes that their best life is now is going to take up their cross and follow Jesus. 
They're not going to suffer well. They will pursue their own interests because this is all they have. If there's no crown in the future, they will embrace no cross now. And Jesus told us that you can't be his disciple if you fail to take up a cross. So we're really talking about essential things here. So here's the question I ask as we begin this message. Do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our focus this morning is verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. At the end of chapter 4, you'll remember in our last message, Paul says, The momentary lightness of my affliction is working within me an eternal weight of glory, as I look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the seen things are temporary, but the unseen things are eternal. Which means that suffering in Paul's life, his current condition, wasn't the most important thing about him. No, the most important thing about Paul was the eternal weight of glory that God had planned for him. And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to explain in more detail what that glory is. And Paul's explanation divides into two parts. So there's two points this morning. He's going to talk about our future hope in verses 1 through 5 and our intermediate joy in verses 6 through 10. Our future hope and our intermediate joy. So the first thing is our future hope. Everybody look at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now just again, we remember that when Paul is saying we and us, he's using a figure of speech so that he means I and me. He's using the plural, but he's really referring to his own experience. He's narrating his own experience of suffering, in fact, and persecution, and of what his expectation was after he finally dies. At some point, he expects to die, to be killed at the end of all of this. And he's saying that he has confidence that if his earthly tent is torn down, he has a building from God. And so Paul's moving into this series of symbols to explain his future hope. Ultimately, his persecuted body is not his destiny. How does he know that? Because if his earthly tent, that would be his persecuted body, if it's torn down, he knows that God is going to give him a new building, which means God's going to give him a new body. But the body which Paul is to receive, and indeed that you and I are to receive if we know Christ, it's not like the body that, that Paul had when he was writing the, the letter of 2 Corinthians. It's, this resurrected body is a house, he says, that's not made with human hands. Which means it's not the kind of body that your parents gave to you. The body that you inherited by birth is the body that's fallen and that's subject to death. The body that God is going to give you is, he says, eternal and in the heavens. That means that the physical body that you have now is fallen and mortal. The physical body that you will receive will be unfallen and immortal. It will be physical. It will never die. Indeed, it cannot die. 
But notice that Paul says that this body is eternal and in the heavens. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means is that it's a reference to the fact that all our hope for resurrection is bound up in somebody who's already been resurrected. That someone who is seated right now at the right hand of God. That's where all our hope is for resurrection. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of, on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That your resurrection life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When we see him, we'll be made like him because we will see him as he is. And our body, our physical body, will be made to be like his physical body. You also remember in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. That means that God is going to do for your body what he did for Jesus' body. Jesus was raised in his own physical body. It was not a ghost body. It was not a spirit body. It was his own physical body. He ate with his disciples. You remember that? Food going into his mouth, being digested. Thomas came. I'm not going to believe unless I can see. And so Jesus shows up and he sees him. And then he says, come touch. Thomas, he goes and touches. This is, this is, this is the New Testament writers trying to tell you this is physical. Okay? So he goes and touches the wounds on Jesus. That means that your resurrection body is going to be physical too, minus the sin and minus the suffering and the decay that you experience now. It will be what God always meant for you to be. So you don't have to be afraid of your building being torn down because you have a building from God that's waiting for you. So look at verse 2. For indeed, in this house, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Paul says in his current house, his current fallen body, he's groaning. Groaning is what you do when you experience pain. So you just have to imagine this. If somebody comes up to you and they belt you as hard as they can in your stomach, what are you going to do? You're going to keel over like this, and probably even if you try not to make a sound, you're going to make a sound. You're going to, Ugh. it's going to be a groan, right? If you take a body blow, you're going to groan with, with that. Paul says that that's what this life is like. It's a series of body blows. It hurts. And when you endure the hurts, you groan. And the aching and the pain that you feel comes out in beleaguered groans. But that's not the end of it. Because he says the more you groan, the more you long for something more. The more pain and grief that you endure, the more your appetite opens up for something that will truly satisfy you. Remember how Paul said that momentary light affliction produces in us an eternal weight of glory? You remember that in chapter 4? Well, this is it. 
He's saying that the groaning brings the longing for something more, for something better. Don't let this be lost on you. This, this world is in many ways a wonderful world. At certain times, we can become very comfortable with it. We can be very comfortable in it. Indeed, we can wish that it would, sometimes we have experiences, we can just wish that things would never change. One of my favorite times of the week is Friday night fun night at my house. The family comes together, we get some pizza, and we watch some silly movie. Before we watch the movie, we watch Andy of Mayberry, because it's the greatest television show of all time. <laughs> and we eat pizza, and we watch a warm-up with Andy of Mayberry. I, I, I look forward to that time every week. It's the highlight. I would rather do that than to do anything else on the planet. It's, to, it, it's to 5 o'clock on Friday. You just don't want those things to change. Everyone's at the table. Everyone's happy. And there's a feast. So it's real easy at times to feel like we don't want these things to change. But one of the things that God does through our suffering is he changes things in ways that make us groan. But he does this so that your groaning will turn into a longing for the age to come. Several weeks ago, I had a real heavy conversation with a dear brother who late last year buried his 20-year-old son. It was very sudden, unexpected, completely bewildering. His grief, his wife's grief, has been profound, deep, at times seeming like it'd just be too much for them to bear. And yet he told me that a lot of the things that, used to, that he used to care about, he just doesn't care about them anymore. A lot of the inner Nicene spats and controversies that used to capture his attention had completely lost their hold on him. All he cares about now is doing what he can to serve God's people and to build the church to get more people translated from this age to the, to the place where his son is. And indeed, he longs to see his son. His focus has been completely transformed through grief. I know that any number of you can testify to this experience in your own life. God uses pain and grief to loosen our grip on this fallen world and to focus our longing on him and on the age to come. And for Paul, the more pain and persecution that touches his body, the more he longs to be clothed with his resurrected body. So look at verse 3. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, having put on that resurrected body, we shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, our fallen body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, Paul is, is getting deep into this metaphor of being clothed, clothed versus being naked. To be clothed, obviously, is explained at the end of verse 2. It means to be clothed with the resurrected body. So then to be found naked means to be without the resurrection body. 
And what he's explaining is that he's burdened because he doesn't want to die and be in a state where his body is separated from his soul, where his outer man, at the end of chapter 4, might be separated from his inner man. His inner man would be naked if that were to happen. You see what he's saying here. He's inner man without a body. The best case scenario for Paul is not to die and be separated body and soul. The best case scenario would involve never dying. And that's what he's expressing here. His, for his current decaying body to be what he calls swallowed up by life. Which means transformed directly into the resurrection body. This is in fact what will happen to any of us who are here and who are still alive when the Lord returns. They, um, we're not going to die if that happens. It, um, we're just going to be changed, the Bible says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed, those of us who may remain at that time. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul's expressing his desire, earnest desire, not to have to die, but to see Jesus return and to experience that transformation to the new body without passing through death first. That's a good thing to desire. We all should wish for that. Why should we wish for that? Well, look at the next verse. He who, now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. We should all desire this because it is, in fact, God's purpose for us. God's purpose for us is not life forever in our fallen bodies, watching Andy of Mayberry until the end of the age. That's not what it is. God's purpose for us is life forever in renewed, perfect bodies. And God has given us his spirit now in our dying bodies as a pledge that he will make good on the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. We can face suffering and persecution now because we have the Spirit now, and that Spirit who raised Jesus will raise us up too. The indwelling Spirit wants us to look to this great purpose that God has prepared for us. So the Spirit has been left in our heart as a pledge that that transformation is going to happen. You should want it immediately. So what's the, what's the point of all this? Um, well, the point is, is that there's no pain that you are going through now, no grief that you experience in this life, no loss that you suffer on this side of glory that won't be made up to you and then some in the age to come. We cling white-knuckled to this life because we have let ourselves believe that it's all we have. Because we've not considered the eternal weight of glory waiting for us on the other side. And we sometimes can't deal with grief because we have not let this hope in us like we should. I moved to Louisville the second time in 2008. Got a job teaching. I was the dean at Boyce College when I moved here. And I needed to come and start early. And it was the housing crisis. And our, our house wouldn't sell in Dallas. So for the first month, I had to, to commute between Louisville and Dallas. Come work here in the week and try to fly home on the weekend. And um, I would be able to see Susan and the girls then. But in the meantime, when I was here, they uh, put me up in a hotel room on campus for a little while. But then eventually, 
I guess that was too expensive. They put me into the missionary house that's on campus, a little, a more permanent place. And um, Susan and the girls, at that time we just had the two girls, uh, they weren't here. So I got to know really well the missionaries who were also living in that house. That, that house is used for missionaries who are on furlough, who are home from overseas. And I got to be pretty good friends with a family, uh, Todd and Timberly Borger, and their son, son Samuel. They had not been there much longer than I had, and one day I sat with them at their kitchen table, and um, they shared with me the events that led them away from their home on the mission field in Indonesia to be staying where I was staying uh, at that moment. That previous May, Timberly and their nine-year-old daughter, Anna, had taken a bike ride together. It was a familiar bike ride that they had done together uh, numerous times. And um, Timberly would usually ride behind the kids on their, their bike rides, but they were just coming to this bridge that crosses a ravine uh, um, not that far from their home, and a motorcycle cut Timberly off, and she had to stop, and so Anna kept riding ahead, and so after Timberly stopped, she pedaled real fast ahead to go catch up with Anna, and she looked across the bridge, and she saw Anna pedaling away, and so she tried to catch up with her, but she never could catch her, and she got home, and she couldn't find Anna, she told Todd, and they couldn't find Anna, and they had just looked and looked for hours. They couldn't find Anna. Until finally, after a number of hours, somebody found her. Timberly had not seen her pedaling across the ravine. It was somebody else or something else. Um, she had missed that Anna had actually ridden off into the, the ravine. She had missed the bridge somehow, and she, she fell to the bottom of it, and died. And so in that moment, their whole world fell apart in Indonesia. They were no longer on the field anymore because they were putting the pieces back together in that little apartment that Southern had provided for them on campus. And as they're telling me this story, I'm, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And so we're just crying at the table. This had only happened like three months before. I prayed with them and then we just cried some more. I could hardly imagine what they were, they were going through. It was so fresh uh, for them as they were describing it. But one of the great comforts to them in that time, and even now, was Anna's manifest love for the Lord. God had saved Anna and had given Todd and Timberly, her parents, so many evidences of grace in her life. And eventually, Todd started a blog um, so that he could tell the story of Anna's life and her loves and her faith in Christ. And it was, there were so many remarkable stories about her life. And anyway, he titled this blog, Anna Resurgit. You can go online right now and, and go look at this, see pictures of Anna, read about her story. If you go to the About page, you will read where Todd explains what the title of the blog means, Anna Resurgent. And I'm just going to read to you what he says. He says, resurgent is Latin for will rise again. Anna resurgent means Anna will rise again. It was a former practice to inscribe on headstones the word resurgent, which means I will rise again. Graves were positioned 
so that the dead would be facing to the east as they rose from their graves. In this way, they would be facing their Lord as he came again like the sun from the east. My hope is that the title of this blog will be a statement of faith concerning Anna and her Lord, but also a statement of comfort for us who miss her and are anxiously awaiting the return of that same Jesus Christ. End quote. How do you face the terrifying specter of death? If you would be a Christian, you would do it like this. You will remember what the Lord Jesus said to us in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If you're facing death, you know that the end of this life is but the gateway to life eternal. Jesus assures you that he is going to raise you up into something so glorious that we would be tempted to worship you if we could see it now. Unless a grain of Wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains by itself alone. Guess who the grain of wheat was? Jesus. Unless I go into the ground and die, there's not going to be a bunch of followers coming after me. There's not going to be eternal life in the age to come. But if the grain of wheat falls into the ground, it's going to come back. It's going to grow, right? And you say, my body's going into the ground and I'm going to come back. I'm going to be raised up. And I'm not going to be alone. I'm going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. So if you lose your life, you don't lose it. You get it back. How do you face the grief of losing someone so precious as little Anna? Your one comfort is that God will indeed make all the sad things come untrue. You plant your little seed in the ground and you turn your eyes to the east and you say, come Lord Jesus. And then you come back to this room every Sunday. You gather with God's people and you confess with tears and longing. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the life of the age to come. And we'll say it together over and over every week. And what you'll experience is the Holy Spirit forming in you a heart longing for that day. You will feel your grip loosening on the things that you once held dear and you will begin to feel in your bones how much you want to see the light appear in the eastern sky and to see him with your own eyes rising with healing in his wings. Because there is coming a day when the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and with a blast of the trumpet and with the voice of the archangel and he will call his saints forth and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Anna, Timmy Pang, Tom Bond, Nick Challies, Debbie Thompson, three little glory babies that Susan and I never got to meet, they're going to rise first. And then those of us who remain will be changed and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. When you have to bury someone that you love, when you have to face death yourself, that is when the resurrection will mean everything to you. This is our hope. This is what we believe. Our future hope. Finally, our intermediate joy. Everybody look at verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. What's Paul mean by this? He says while he's at home in the body, he's absent from the Lord. He's not denying that the Spirit of Christ is with him. That's not what he means by this. He's not denying that the Spirit of Christ is with us, even now. He's simply saying that while we're in this body, the return of Christ hasn't happened yet. And we are not yet seeing Jesus face to face as we one day will. In that sense, we're absent from the Lord. But we are of good courage now because we're walking by faith and not by, by what we're seeing now. Now we're seeing the suffering of the present time, the grief of losing loved ones, the decay of our bodies, for some of us even persecution. We can see all of that with our eyes. That, that much is clear to us. We can see it in the world. But we live by trusting in the promise of his, his coming, not what we see with our eyes, but what we don't see yet with our eyes. We don't see him now, but we know we will, so we're okay no matter what happens now. But Paul is now going to raise a big question. What if we don't live long enough to see his return? What if we're not among those who are transformed in an instant? When, debt, when we're swallowed up by, by life. What if we're not among those who see him return in the eastern sky? What if we die before that happens? What happens to us? We have loved ones who've gone on before. We put their bodies in the ground. We know where their bodies are. They're not raised. What about them? What about us if we die before the Lord's return? Our body goes into the ground. What becomes of us? What happens to me between my death and the Lord's return? And the question that most people have when they contemplate this existence, your body in the ground, the Lord's not returned yet. The thing they want to know is, is am I going to be okay? I won't have a body. Where will I be? Well, Paul answers in the next verse. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's where you'll be. Paul says, I'm of good courage about all this because if I die, so be it. I prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This is where Paul solves for us this great question. Paul says that if we face death before the Lord's return, we can be of good courage because even though our body dies, we don't cease to exist. Even though the blood no longer runs through our veins, 
we still exist absent from or apart from the body. To put it in Paul's terms at the end of chapter 4, we have an inner man and an outer man. We have a soul and we have a body. Our inner man, our soul, doesn't die, but rather goes home to be with Jesus. This is what the theologians call, write this down, the intermediate state. Okay, The intermediate state. Because it describes what happens to us between our death and the Lord's return. Our soul exists apart from our body, and we are in Jesus. We are with Jesus in heaven. But intermediate state doesn't really capture what this will be for us because Paul says he would prefer to be in that state, to be absent from the body and with Jesus. He would prefer that than to be in his present body and apart from Jesus. In other words, even though the resurrection is our ultimate joy, there is an intermediate joy that comes before the resurrection for those who die before the Lord's return. That's why Paul talks the way he does in Philippians 1. You'll, you'll remember this. He, he was talking about um, what's going to happen, you know, what might happen to him while he was in prison and he was facing death. And he says in Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to beware, to be with Christ. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ. Paul's confident if he leaves this body, he will be with Jesus. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. It's better than this fallen existence. It's not worse than this fallen existence. It's better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul's confident that even if he dies before the Lord's return, it's still better than being in this fallen world. It'd be better to be with Christ apart from the body than to be away from Christ in the body. Because Christ is everything. And so he says in verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear at that place, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Because of this stuff about resurrection and being with Christ, because it's true, no matter what condition we are in, at home with Jesus or absent from Jesus, our ambition is to please Christ. Why? Because we know that judgment is coming. And Christ is going to render to each of us according to our deeds. Our deeds will either testify that we knew Christ and were saved by him, or they will testify that we never knew him. It will be Christ that saves us if we're saved. It won't be our deeds. But our deeds will testify as to whether or not we, we knew him. And so we want to be pleasing to Christ no matter what. Now, some of this may sound strange to you. You're thinking about, okay, <laughs> the intermediate state, existence without a body. And maybe you're thinking, how can it be better under any circumstance to be apart from the body? That sounds kind of scary. Nevertheless, for Paul, intermediate joy apart from the body is better than present groaning in the body. Why? This is what I want you to hear. Because the key ingredient to joy and the key ingredient to home is the presence of Jesus. That's the key ingredient. 
It's better to be in the presence of Jesus in any state than not to be. Some years ago, we had an accident in our house. The toaster kept caught on fire, and it was plugged in, and um, it just blew up. And I mean, the flames went up. They started licking up the, the cabinets. It was a good thing I wasn't there. Susan caught it. And if I were there, I probably would have thrown water on it, which would have made it worse because it was plugged in. But she thought fast. She got a big thing of flour. She dumped it on it and, and put it out. But let's just imagine for a minute that she didn't get it put out. And... Um, our house burned down, and we, we all escaped the house to safety, but we lost the house and everything in it. Our earthly dwelling is destroyed. And uh, as we're standing there looking at the smoldering ruin, a neighbor walks over and makes an offer, and he says, look, I have a lot of money. I have a, a large furnace home that I'm not using. It's in a better neighborhood. I'd like to give it to you. And I say, that sounds great. That's just what we need right now. But then the neighbor says, no, I mean only you, Denny. They're going to have to find somewhere else. You can come to this place, but not them. Let's suppose another neighbor is listening in. He says, forget about that. Look, our basement, it's not finished. There's no bathroom down there. But there is a bed. There's plenty of room. You can all stay down there for as long as you need one guy's offering a what looks to be a permanent place. The other guy, a temporary place. What do you think I prefer? A temporary place. And you know why. Because the key ingredient to joy and to being at home is the presence of my family. And it's better to be with my family in an unfinished basement than to be anywhere else apart from them. Period. That's why the intermediate state is really something for us to look forward to as better than what we have now. Because the key ingredient to joy is the presence of Jesus. It will be better to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord than to be present in this fallen, dying, broken existence absent from Jesus. He's the indispensable ingredient to our joy. He is our joy and our hope and our life. We just want to have him. If we lose everything else besides, and yet we have him, we have everything. So what's this going to be like? This intermediate joy in this temporary spot until the Lord returns. Imagine the safest and most secure and most loved place that you've ever been in. Maybe remember a time when you were a child and you sat in your father's lap and he held you and kissed you on the head and said, I love you. Imagine that moment. That's what it'll be like. Time's infinity. So you don't have to, be, to fear being absent from the body when you are present with the Lord. Jesus is the substance of your joy and flourishing. Nothing can separate you from his love so that no matter what happens, you are quite safe. Little child of God, you're quite safe. That changes everything for now, doesn't it? It means 
nobody can really hurt us. We'll have real griefs, real hard things, but nobody can really move any of that because Jesus doesn't let go of us. I just want to say something to those of you who are here. You're listening to all this. Maybe it sounds new to you. Maybe it sounds strange. I just want to tell you that this is solid gold reality. This is real. This isn't for pretend. There was a man named Jesus who was the very son of God who lived a perfect life, the life you should have lived but don't live. He obeyed God in every way. And he came not just to give us an example. He came to die for people who deserved to die. He died in our place. Three days later, he was raised again from the dead. He was seen by many witnesses. Their, their testimony is set down for us in Scripture. Not one guy, not two guys. Hundreds of people saw him alive. And he has promised that if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it's going to bear much fruit. Which means that if you can get yourself and your wagon hitched to this grain of wheat, you can live eternally too. You can have your sins forgiven and you can have eternal life. You can't earn this because you've blown it already too much. But you can have this as a free gift. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and the Bible says that you will be saved and he will never let you go. If you've never done that, you need to do it today. I would love to talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ and to follow him, to live with eternal life. There'd be any number of people here who'd love to do that. Find me, find a member of this church. We invite you to be saved. Let me pray. Father, I pray you'd use this word to transform us into the image of your own dear son because we want to be found in the likeness of his resurrection, to be made like him in every way. And I pray that the glory and the joy of that future would break into our presence and would begin to dispel the darkness and would begin to transform the griefs and the sorrows that we experience now. Do it, Lord. Let that grain of wheat bear fruit in us and through us, even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.